Doctors at Cedars-Sinai think that ChatGPT, the artificially intelligent chatbot from OpenAI, could give newly diagnosed patients with liver disease or liver cancer decent advice for managing their condition. For a new study, the bot was able to give basic advice about lifestyle changes and treatment options. Researchers found that while answers were not as good as a physician's, ChatGPT could be a useful supplement to the doctor's orders. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ruth Reader. The House subcommittee investigating the federal response to the pandemic wants Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, to explain what role the union may have had in shaping CDC guidance on school closings and reopenings during the pandemic. In a letter, Republican representative from Ohio, Brad Wenstrup, the chairman of the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic, has asked Weingarten to testify in an April 26th hearing that will examine the consequences of pandemic-era school closures and her involvement as well as that of the American Federation of Teachers. The letter alleges the unions were granted uncommon access to edit CDC guidance ahead of its release, which resulted in the CDC advising that schools should remain closed in much of the U.S., The subcommittee also issued letters requesting documentation from the CDC and 14 other non-governmental groups. Meanwhile, HHS's director of the Office for Civil Rights, Melanie Fontes Rayner, said the agency is investigating claims that health system websites used embedded trackers that sent protected data to third parties. Rayner spoke Tuesday at the International Association of Privacy Professionals Summit in Washington. The fresh scrutiny on health system website data tracking follows December guidance from the OCR, stating that much of what customers share through clicks and searches on sites is protected under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And reporter Catherine Ellen Foley is at the World Vaccine Congress this week. She joins me now to share what she's been reporting on. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You know, what's the most interesting things that you're hearing? Yeah, reporting live here from the downtown convention center here in Washington, D.C. So I've been paying a lot of attention to the future of COVID-19 vaccines. And so far, it seems like a lot of sponsors, which is just a fancy word for drug makers, have some really interesting ideas about where to go. But there are also a ton of questions, right? So this year, like we've been talking about for a while, a lot of companies' contracts with the federal government are going to end. And so companies are starting to think about what it'll look like to go to a commercial market, which is what we have for for most vaccines, where you have things like hospitals buying up vaccinations instead of the federal government. A lot won't change for individuals receiving vaccines or updated boosters because insurance companies cover those as long as they're recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So some of the reps I talked to from one COVID-19 vaccine manufacturer, Novavax, said it really wants to make sure that the federal government helps this transition go smoothly so there's never a gap in vaccine coverage. So what about some of the technology behind these vaccines? How are companies thinking about the future of those kinds of vaccines? I think one of the biggest areas is looking at instead of having, you know, an updated booster for the most currently circulated strains, kind of like what we have for the flu every year, there's a lot of talk of developing a pan-coronavirus vaccine. So maybe vaccines that target several different parts of the virus that could span a couple of different variants as they evolve, or maybe vaccines that could last for like two or three years. But those also pose a lot of like technologically difficult 
questions in terms of like research and development. So it's been a high level discussion, I would say. Nobody here is really getting into specifics about what they're working on. Another big question is this idea of intranasal vaccines or inhaled vaccines, because we know that COVID-19 is spread through airways and shots in our arms tend to generate one type of antibody. But there's this idea that if we're able to inhale vaccines, we'll produce antibodies in more of our airways, which could potentially lead to the stop of transmission. Another thing that we're talking about a lot is how are we even going to test and develop vaccines for people who at this point have some sort of hybrid immunity. I'm up to date with my vaccines, but I've also had COVID, right? And I know that's not unique. A lot of people are in that situation. So how can we tell that these future iterations of vaccines are actually safe and effective? How are we going to design those studies? Because at a certain point, it becomes kind of inefficient to hold a big randomized controlled trial when we're trying to get these products out the gate really fast. One researcher I was speaking with was saying it's really difficult because you want to have the most up-to-date data on the variant that you're trying to target, but then you also have to wait for the time it takes to test your new product. So there's always going to be tension between those two things. And, you know, if you spend too long testing, then perhaps there's going to be another variant that is circulating. And we frankly just don't have a ton of answers about what kind of protection we're going to need if so many of us do have this hybrid immunity. The biggest question on people's minds is what our updated COVID-19 boosters going to look like. You know, back in January, the Food and Drug Administration advisors recommended that we update the official primary series of COVID-19 vaccines to include a bivalent shot. But we're sort of waiting until June when advisors are going to talk about what strain they want to see going on in the fall. And while a lot of companies aren't you know, sharing too many specifics here in in front of all their competitors. They're working currently with regulators and trying to stay in touch with them, but also working on multiple iterations or types of vaccines in the hopes that one of them will be what FDA ultimately recommends. I'm really curious, you know, we've talked a lot, I think, over the past couple of years about mRNA vaccines, how they're the future. And I'm really curious if there was any discussion there, if any conversation was happening around sort of what's next for mRNA vaccines and, you know, what other types of diseases we might use them for. Of all the vaccine platforms, we think about mRNA as being the most agile, right? You know, we have vaccines that are inactivated viruses. We have vaccines that are based on proteins. Then we have mRNA vaccines, which in theory should be a plug and play product. Or you get a new antigen that you want to code for and like beep, boop, boop, you plug that in and you're good to go. But then again, we get to this question of how we're going to test safety and efficacy for such a quickly evolving product. And if we really need to conduct all these randomized control trials, or if we can look at something like immunogenicity, which is sort of a measure of the type of immune response our bodies generate after receiving a vaccine. And if that can be a good proxy for whether or not this vaccine will protect us from uh, severe disease and death, which is really the main goal of vaccines. And then we sort of hope that vaccines can also decrease transmission and mild disease as well. But really, the main goal is preventing against severe disease and death. 
The other big question, of course, is what are we going to apply them to next, right? I believe Moderna has an mRNA flu vaccine that is in production. Also working on some anti-cancer vaccines, which would, you know, essentially train your body to make antibodies for cancer antigens instead of a viral antigen. So that is definitely also pretty exciting and something people here are pretty excited about. Amazing. So what else are people talking about? I know that, you know, we had a really rough season of illness this year between strep and RSV. I'm sure that there were conversations around chasing some of these other illnesses. RSV in particular is like a pretty exciting space because we have two candidates for for Pfizer. It's actually the same candidate, but one is supposed to be for older adults and one is supposed to be for pregnant individuals to give their unborn babies some protection against RSV. As we know, older adults and the young children are most at risk for developing severe disease. And then GSK has a similar RSV vaccine for older adults also in the works. So we're expecting decisions on those products later this year. But I also got the chance to hear from some folks at Merck who were talking about a product they're developing, which is an antibody. And normally we think about antibodies as treatments for disease. But in this case, the idea that Merck has is if you could deliver an antibody to infants, then it could act like a vaccine for their entire first year of life. And the thinking is that any of the antibodies that are passed on from a pregnant person to their baby, those don't stick around for a super duper long time. So, you know, if you have a baby that's born in, let's say, spring, maybe by the time RSV season or typical RSV season comes around, that baby's antibodies will have waned, but they'll still be really vulnerable. So Merck's idea is that if they can get a product that's an antibody that's ministered like a vaccine, it could actually provide protection for that baby's whole first year of life, which is pretty interesting. I'm curious, what has been your favorite thing that you have learned at the conference? I happen to have a really good conversation with Peter Hotez. He's a pediatrician and he works on vaccines at the Baylor College of Medicine. And I've talked to him for some of my reporting on Moderna's pediatric vaccines. And he, it turns out, has a really interesting book coming out this summer that is looking at vaccine hesitancy and how for the first time it's really spreading all over the globe. I'm really looking forward to learning more about how that is affecting global health later on. Super fascinating and obviously a huge and important topic. It's been great to get your updates and insights. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese and Afra Abdullah are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Amen is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. I'm Ruth Reader. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.